welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. This is our inaugural stream from our Palm Beach studio for Winner Take All. Welcome to lovely Florida in the, in the month of February. So what, when Google released earnings recently, they missed earnings. And, well, they missed earnings on revenue. So they hit earnings for profit. They missed uh, investor expectations for their revenue by a decent amount. What they did do, this was Sundar, the, the kind of official CEO of Alphabet. This was his first earnings call without Larry or, or Sergey. Uh, and so we've spoken about this many times on the show that Google does not break out revenue for things like YouTube, which is a considerable part of the business. If you remember maybe two or three quarters ago, they missed earnings. They missed um, on revenue expectation and they blamed YouTube uh, for that miss. And uh, investors and analysts didn't really know what to say because they said, well, you don't break out YouTube, but you're blaming YouTube for your miss. You know, you're supposed to break out numbers when they have a material impact on the business. You're saying that this is why you missed. It seems pretty material, but you're not giving me the data. Um, clearly, Larry and Sergey didn't want that. Sundar, I think probably a mixture of this being his first earnings call as the uh, absolute CEO of, of, of the entire alphabet a was one reason, and B, he knew that they were going to have a, re a pretty uh, material revenue miss and could help placate his investor base by providing more transparency that there is good growth in the business and then highlighting that growth from YouTube. 2018 YouTube revenue was $11.2 billion and uh, 2019 was $15.5 billion in revenue as compared to 15% revenue growth for Google search. Um, so that's you know some of what they're getting at. Now, Let's talk about this. This is a $15 billion revenue number. What other company do we talk a lot about on this show that has $15 billion and is a media company? Yep. So if you're guessing it, if, you, if you're thinking Netflix, you're thinking correctly. Uh, Netflix has uh, generated about $5.5 billion in revenue in the fourth quarter. And when you Total it all up, they are right around maybe $19 billion over, over the past 12-month um, period of time. So roughly similar, yes, call it $3.5-$4 billion off revenue-wise. But when we look at those numbers and we look at how much money the companies are spending on this thing called content... You now get a much clearer picture about the difference of what we say where Netflix is not a platform business, where we are much more skeptical about the growth outlook and the defensibility of Netflix's business because they are linear versus YouTube being the platform uh, kind of corollary to Netflix. So if YouTube's spending about 15, earning about $15 billion in revenue annually, um, historically, we know that they don't break out what their revenue share is with third-party content creators. But we know historical breakouts and 
at, at, at the most extreme, what, what Ruth, the CFO of Google of Alphabet said is a majority of that $15 billion is paid out uh, to creators. Historically, if you are a small creator, you would earn about 55% of, let's say you make a hundred bucks in ads, you keep $55. YouTube keeps $45. Those were the original rates. Those are old rates. Um, if you don't have a lot of leverage, you know, if your channel isn't as big or you don't have as much uh, um, leverage with YouTube, then you're going to be, let's just say closer to keeping maybe around 55%. So what that means is that of $15 billion, let's say YouTube is paying out 60% of that to creators. If you're a larger creator, you keep 60% of the revenue um, and, 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 and YouTube keeps less. Why is, that, why is it a much larger revenue uh, share kind of take rate split than say something like Uber? Um, because what YouTube is doing is they're providing all of the servers, all of the hosting, all of the content delivery network, right? So they're giving you an end-to-end -end video solution, uh, video distribution uh, product. And there's, um, from a technical standpoint, a lot more that goes into that than the literal kind of matchmaking of, you know, a car driver and a um and, and, and a passenger. So from a technical standpoint, there's a lot more infrastructure and cost that goes into that. I believe that, you know, I, I think that uh, that is a real cost when you look at um, server costs, when you look at Netflix outside of content, one of Netflix's biggest uh, expenses is um, their server storage and, and server, you know, usage. And so that's why you've seen a lot of these, you know, there's a lot of stories where Netflix was trying to, you know, uh, um, handle their cloud storage costs, looking at bringing their cloud storage in house and doing it themselves versus, you know, uh, using other providers like, um, Amazon or Google Cloud or Microsoft, right? Those are the three big players there. So it is a very significant cost. For YouTube, if 60% of that $15 billion is going to creators, then that means that they've got about, call it $9 billion in that content costs going out to creators. Um, Netflix is spending over $12 billion on content. And Netflix is having a, um, you know, a, uh, a, a larger, um, a, a three and a half, four billion dollar greater revenue base, but they have, um, you know, a larger cost for content as a proportion to revenue. So Netflix is spending more money on content than YouTube is. If you just were to, do the simple math as a percentage of revenue. Um, Netflix is amortizing the cost of that content over many years because they're saying that they own the content, but all of that risk is on their balance sheet. And whether or not Netflix is going to be able to monetize that content effectively um, over those many years, which is the assumption of why they're depreciating it over time, as opposed to having it be a one-time cost on their P&L, uh, is still yet to be seen. And if Netflix can continue to, to um, grow the business 
and retain their existing customers while new competition comes in and while decreasing their annual spend on content, which is what they've said they're going to do, where they're going to be spending theoretically less than $12 billion a year on content going forward, but they're still going to have strong growth aspirations and expectations from Wall Street. So from a risk standpoint, you know, Netflix has a lot more risk associated with how they're going to keep customers engaged. YouTube is getting this content for free, but what YouTube is paying out is all based on performance, right? It's how many eyeballs am I bringing to your videos? How many advertisers can I get to buy ads against these eyeballs? And so if if YouTube can't book as many advertisers or if YouTube can't charge as high CPMs, then, okay, their YouTube ad revenue doesn't maybe grow at 36% year over year anymore, but they don't have a hard expense line item for content creation. They are starting to do some original content creation, but it pales in comparison to the amount of content that Netflix is making or the amount of content that they get from third-party content creators. Um, so, you know, if I had to pick between one of these two businesses, I'd much rather prefer to be running YouTube as opposed to Netflix. Um, as we've seen now, where Disney just released earnings uh, also this week. And Disney in the first quarter, or, or sorry, the first quarter that Disney Plus was out, uh, came out October 10th or 11th of 2019. So in a little less than three months, they this Wall Street expected them to get 20 million subscribers to Disney Plus. They got 26 million. So they beat by 30% Wall Street's expectation on Disney Plus and um, had a very strong earnings report otherwise. So um, you're able to see now competition come in, get a significant customer base with original content. And, and, and some people have said, well, what does it mean to have a defensible network effect? What that says is when you have, when you have supply, when you have your supply coming from third party, whether that's a content creator like YouTube, whether that's a driver on Uber, whether that's an app developer on iOS, the value that your consumers are consuming, you're not creating it, right? The platform doesn't own the means of production. It creates the means of connection, which means that that is where you have that supply side network effect. I have millions and millions of third party value creators, what we call producers. And those producers in YouTube's case are content creators. Same thing for Instagram. And having another competitive platform to YouTube get enough demand off of third party content is where you have this winner-take-all dynamic where you just can't magically snap your fingers and, 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 and get supply without having demand. And how do you play this chicken and egg game, right? And this is, this is the platform challenge or the, or the really good thing about platforms if you're the dominant platform. How do you get demand to get supply and how do you get supply to get demand? That is the chicken and egg problem, my friends. Um, so that's some of what we get at when I say a defensible network effect. It's really coming from that supply side, uh, that second customer group that that is creating the value for your business, right? That's why we call them also a customer group. Okay, 
So this is some of the the uh, YouTube information that just came out compared to Netflix. We, we spoke about Disney. There's some other interesting news that came out this week where ICE owns the New York Stock Exchange, made a takeover bid to buy eBay, which is also in Platt. So you've got a two, two platform companies, ICE, which owns New York Stock Exchange and a number of other exchanges. These are financial exchanges. These are people trading um, equities or options or derivatives. These are financial instruments that people are trading. There's no real physical product that's being traded. This is a digital financial product, which is ICE's world, and it's the Intercontinental Exchange, now buying uh, a takeover bid for eBay. They would want eBay to spin off its, um, you know, part of its business, which deals with uh, classified, so kind of, um, you know, classified ad business. So they want to spin them off, but they would want to keep the core product marketplace of eBay, right? Where I can go and sell used goods and and people can buy those goods on eBay. And the um, CEO of ICE is also the founder. And he started this company about 20 years ago. Really interesting guy. Um, Great platform entrepreneur. And basically he sees a vision to improve and I guess use some of ICE, ICE's technology around matchmaking and running exchanges that can be applied to eBay. Honestly, I'm kind of struggling to see it. What would have made a lot more sense to me would would be, um, or, or a lot more of a similar business model would be uh, market access, for example, which is also in Plat. Uh, MKTX is the ticker. It's about a $13 billion market cap. We've spoken about market access in the past. It's a leading marketplace to trade bonds. And that's not something that I think ICE, you know, it has has a heavy amount of penetration in. So ICE's market cap is about $50 billion. And eBay is $30 billion. This is a massive acquisition. They the classified business is maybe a ten billion dollar business, so they'll spin that off. Uh, maybe you got a twenty billion dollar business, you know, in eBay after you after you uh, spin off that part of the business and sell that off. So um, I'm struggling to see it. Maybe he just thinks it can be better run. I don't really see the platform conglomerate synergies that we talk a lot about on the show, right? Which is why we've been so bullish on Uber. Uber just released earnings, by the way. And uh, beat, they beat particularly on um, having uh, less losses than Wall Street expected by about $100 million. I think Wall Street expected about 700, maybe 10, 15 million dollars in loss for the quarter. And they were around uh, maybe 605, 610. So it's about $100 million of stronger earnings. They expected by the end of next year to have a profitable quarter. So that's Wall Street responded very well to that. The stock is up a couple percent um, in after hours trading. So we've been very bullish on Uber because Uber is a platform conglomerate and you can see these network effects stack on top of each other. When you get that conglomerate status, you get the the benefit of ride sharing now spills over into Uber Eats. Uber Eats being, I think, the biggest uh, delivery, uh, food delivery platform in the US, right? So you get to see these uh, network effects complement one another. What network effects stack from ICE, which has 
uh, say the New York Stock Exchange, which has traders, which has companies that are listing their their financial instruments and then they're being traded around um, to eBay, which is physical products. Right. Think about the consumer and the producer in both of those marketplace businesses. One is what we would call an investment platform, ICE, and then the other one is what we would call a product marketplace. They're both platforms. They're both what we would call exchange platforms. Um, but I am struggling to see the synergies. Now, eBay is without a CEO. They have an interim CEO. Devin Wenning stepped down in the fall of 2019. They've had some activist investors. Devin stepped down. They spun out StubHub. I think they sold it for way too cheap, StubHub, by the way. Um, and I haven't necessarily agreed with the activist investors' actions in eBay to date. Um, but, you know, they're kind of without leadership and without a clear direction. And so maybe they saw this as an opportunity to just say that, you know, the stock is undervalued. We can just operate it better. But maybe they aren't really relying on too much synergy sharing between the two businesses. Um, so other than that, I don't really see the synergies between the companies Maybe it's just, hey, we can operate this business better. We can shield it from these activist investors that are, um, you know, picking away at all of the different operations, distracting the business from doing what it does best. You know, and maybe that's maybe that's the play, but that's, you know, the best read on it that I have. Um, so we've had a couple of requests for people to say, Hey, Alex, you know, tell us more about yourself. Why, um, you know, why do you have the show and, and, uh, you know, why, why are you interested in all this kind of stuff? So I don't like to talk too much about, um, my background, but here it is. So I started Applico about 11 years ago and I had some credit cards. I was in college and thought it would be a good idea to max out my credit cards and start a business. That business was uh, in the app world, and this was 08, 09. The iPhone had just come out, the app store had just come out, and I thought that apps would be a big thing. And started making apps for myself. Um, some of those apps became best-selling apps on, on the, we actually started on the BlackBerry app store. Um, there was actually a decent amount of iPhone apps, believe it or not, maybe a year, year and a half into it. So I started on BlackBerry, uh, those apps became really good sellers and then moved into Android and iOS. Other people started saying, hey, could you help us make apps? And um, that's when I started to uh, um, get into the app development business. And Applico grew to become the largest app developer in the country. We had uh, over 70 people at the time in three different offices around the United States. And... Um, you know, I was in my early, early 20s living the dream. And um, we were working with a variety of clients. We were working with uh, some big companies like Intel, HP, GM, what I would call traditional linear businesses. And then maybe a third of our clientele were companies like Google and a bunch of tech startups. And our product managers would come to me and they would say, hey, uh, you know, the way we're building apps and building technology for this smaller subset of the clientele is very different than the majority of the clientele, these traditional large enterprises. Why? 
right? For, for Google and, and these kinds of companies, you're working on content platform uh, businesses. For other tech startups, it was um, marketplaces for services or for products. And they're similar because they're all facilitating exchange, but they're different because one's a content platform and one's a product marketplace. And no one could make sense of any of this. And so this was probably about uh, seven or eight years ago. This was kind of early 2010s. You know, Uber had, had been around for maybe a couple of years at the time. And so it started to seem to me that there was a new way of building businesses in the 21st century economy and that no one had really put their finger on it. And so I started to dig deeper into um, these new, is there a new business model going on here? And uh, Nick, Nick and I had gone to elementary school together and I went to Nick and I said, Hey, you know, uh, I think there's a new business model here. And um, Nick and was working in an economic think tank for a handful of years after college. He was an English minor in college. I knew he liked to write and, and kind of was thinking about doing a book. And I said, hey, if I think there's a new business model here. And if there is a new business model here, you should absolutely write a book about this. Um, and so he started to read everything that there was about anything relating to two-sided marketplaces to answer the question of, is this a new business model? And why hadn't anyone captured this before. And so he came back after a few months and said, yeah, no one else has connected all these dots. There is some academic research about two-sided marketplaces from, you know, a number of years ago, but it was very high level. If anyone has read an academic paper, um, no offense to the academics, but it's, it's very high level. Let's put it at that. Um, we wanted to really do and, and, and write a book that was very pragmatic, for entrepreneurs, for the business professional that goes deep into the details of the business model, how it works, uh, why it works, and how you can take actionable feedback and frameworks and apply them to your own business. And so that was where there was some stuff talking about two-sided marketplaces, but then you have content platforms and you have investment platforms and you have social networks, right? And how do you... Uh, pull that all together. And so that was then what, what we set out to do for about three years where we were building frameworks in, and we were stress testing them with the platform companies that we were working with in Applico, some big, some startups. And so we were building these frameworks for our own use to help structure and say, well, you know, is this a commoditized or an uncommoditized service marketplace and all these types of um, you know, things that you read about in the book and, and structures that we put into the book, we actually were using in the market. And that's how we were able to harden them and really stress test them. And so we found Macmillan as the publisher and the book came out in 2016. And, you know, all, all along the while, I was trying to think, thinking about Applico and, and what's the future of Applico. And I knew that eventually app development would get commoditized. And it wasn't really that interesting to me to um, play in the commodity game, right? I didn't want to compete on price and uh, do development offshore. And, and that really wasn't of interest to me. And I saw a much grander vision around this business model concept. At the time, I actually didn't even know to call it platform, to be honest. Um, I just felt that if, if no one had captured the thinking around this new business model, these 
are once in a, you know, in a generation type of changes that come into fruition. These are macroeconomic shifts that don't happen over a few year period of time. Um, like say a new technology like mobile, you know, we've now seen 10 years of mobile and everyone's kind of saying, what's the new thing, right? Um, these, these macroeconomic shifts, they manifest themselves over multiple decades of time. And we're still not done seeing the impact of platforms. I'd actually say we're still very early on in seeing the true impact of platforms into all the different parts of the economy. And that's what we cover on this show. So um, I knew that if there, if no one had, had put their finger on this and captured this, there was a lot of opportunity to um, own the thinking around it, really drive the thinking around it, and then uh, figure out a way to create value around that. And that's pretty much all I had to um, basically go back to the company of 70 plus people and try to explain that the current definition of success was no longer the definition of success. And unfortunately, I could not uh, detail what the new definition of success was. But I knew it had something to do with this new business model, which I still didn't know to call platform at the time. And I knew it was somewhere over in this direction over here, but I didn't know how long it would take for us to get there. I didn't know if we'd get a book deal at the time, but I knew we had to go full force in this direction. And oh boy, um, those three or four years of transition in Applico's uh, evolution were easily the hardest thing I've ever had to do, ever, in my entire life. Um, it's very hard to see people go either voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, the company had to go through a wholesale business model change. And then when the book came out, we figured out, yeah, we're going to call these things platforms. And, and the book got a lot of traction. What we started to do is say, okay, we're going to focus on filling this void between how do large traditional enterprises take advantage of platform business opportunities and help bring these two sides to these two worlds together. And that's what Applico has been doing. Last year in May of 2019, three years from when the book came out, we launched the first ETF with uh, or Wisdom Trees ETF called Plat. We helped them, we licensed them data to help them launch that ETF. And that has 70 plus platform, public platform companies, all the public platform companies with over a $2 billion market cap and puts them into a basket of stocks that allows people to invest in, uh, in platform businesses and, and take advantage of, of the financial opportunity that is um, coming true with, with platforms continuing to just control a greater and greater share of the economic value created in the 21st century economy. So really what we've been able to do with Applico and, and me personally is to say, how do we help people um, uh, enable access to the modern economy and, uh, and take advantage of these new business model opportunities, whether that's through the book and the education and the content that we create, whether that's uh, through financial means, through the ETF, um, whether that's through the work that we do in Applico, um, which is uh, helping these large enterprises take advantage of platform opportunities. And, uh, and that's really how it's all come about. And I personally have worked um, really at all spectrum of platforms from small startups to large uh, platform monopolies to um, 
uh, Fortune 10, multi-billion dollar traditional businesses that are trying to figure out how to move into platform opportunities. And what really gets me excited is that um, there is still such a wide gap and such a myriad of opportunities for traditional enterprises to take advantage of platform opportunities, whether that's building things entirely from scratch, but also whether that's them saying, I need to build some stuff from scratch, but I could also go partner, invest, or buy other tech companies that are already platform businesses um, or buy tech companies that I'm then going to turn into a platform business. And um, it's really untapped how these two different models are coming together. Platforms have a very difficult time achieving scale and solving that chicken and egg problem. Every startup, that's the biggest challenge. Many times the technology is most often not the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is how do you play the chicken and egg game? How do you solve for demand and supply and then do that over and over and over again? And the good thing about large traditional enterprises is they have scale and they have a balance sheet and they have a lot of other assets. They have a brand, value-added services, many things that we've covered on the show. Um, and you know that's really what we're setting up Applico for, which is over the long term, if anyone has read Steve Schwartzman's book, What It Takes, it's a great book. You know, the the long term vision for Applico is to um, take what we're doing, which is in a more transactional advisory nature. Maybe sometimes we get to have some equity or, or share an upside of these new businesses that we're creating, but not always. And um, the long term vision is to launch Applico Capital. Uh, similar to uh, Blackstone's trajectory, where you, you've you now built out enough depth, enough expertise, putting traditional businesses and platforms together, um, but you don't own the ultimate outcome of this. And if we are as good as we say we are and we believe we are, why wouldn't we want to put our own money behind that? We absolutely would. But I need to go raise a pretty big fund to pull that off to buy outright either traditional businesses, probably not multi-billion dollar businesses at first, but say mid-sized businesses that have very relevant, actionable platform opportunities. They could buy, invest, partner, um, other tech startups in the space, put them together with the scale, the intrinsic assets of that traditional business. How do you put both of these, these worlds together and get a platform business at scale in two to three years time? Uh, and that's the expertise and the skill set that we are building and deploying today in Applico and just how we monetize that for our business model is that uh, longer term trajectory to uh, raise a fund and, and be an actual owner in these deals that we're putting together. Uh, so that's a little bit about me, a little bit more about the company and, uh, and where we see this platform future going and how we are planning to, uh, to help make our mark on all of that. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you so much for joining and I'll talk to you tomorrow.